Coming up, we're returning once again to 2005 and revisiting one of the highlights of Series 1. So, order yourself a Jubilee pizza, go upstairs where it's safe, it's time to discuss Dalek. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. Great big museum. An alien museum. Someone's got a hobby. The cage contains my one living specimen. Must have fallen through time, the only survivor. It's killing him! Do something! I swear, no one on this base is safe. You've got to keep it in that cell. He can't get out. That lock's got a billion combinations. Civilians, let him through! That thing downstairs is going to kill every last one of us. What's the nearest town? Salt Lake City. Population, one million. All dead. If you want orders, follow this one. Why don't you just die? We're nearly there. Give us two seconds. I've come to help. I'm the doctor. Exterminate! Impossible. Hello everyone, we're back again. I'm Rob and I'm here with Liam. Hi Rob. Hi, how's it going? Uh, not too bad, it's uh, it's going quite well. It's, uh, the weather has massively improved, but to the point where it's improved just a little bit too much. It's far, far too warm um, for, for Britain. But it's a lot better than it was. Yeah, I mean, uh, from we seem to have gone from one extreme of a month pretty much of constant rain to uh, to one of absolute glorious weather. The sun's out. The the skies are clear. Uh, everyone's melting. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's all good. And uh, f- from my point of view as well, it's uh, in terms of work. Uh, I can now work in the office uh, five days a week, which is for me is perfect. That's my my ideal thing of because I know some people are, are quite comfortable working from home. Um, I much prefer. Separate. Is that optional for you? No, it's. Um, uh, I mean, where I work is is quite flexible, but uh, given the whole you know current situation that we're in, basically to work in the office we've had to have permission, um, and I was able to work in the office for three days a week, uh, which yeah. was great. But it's like, oh, get me in the office full time, please. Um, so yeah, uh, that's been a huge improvement. It's it, it's weird though because I know that there are there's there are some places where um, um, people have just been wanting to go back into the office in droves um, where I work it's uh, uh, Tuesdays and yeah just Tuesdays it's it's me and two other people and then the rest of the time it's, it's honestly it's literally it's just me everyone else where I work everyone else just seems to be happy working from home I know everyone has different uh you know, um, different things going on, but I, I think that's insane. I would have thought there would be more people wanting to separate work from home. I'm one of those, but evidently not. But anyway, working from the office uh, f- now for the full five days, and I'm happy. Um, so, have you been up to anything this week? Um, going on a uh, f- few walks. Um, Keeping on top of the reading, which is quite nice. Uh, one book I've finished reading recently is Far From the Madden, uh, Madden Crowd, uh, which is a classic, And it, but it was the first time that I've read it. It's a, it's a very good novel. Um, 
written by Thomas Hardy. Uh, in some respects, it reminded me of uh, The Tenant of Wilfill Hall, um, which is one of my favourites as well. It, in some respects, it has some similarities. Uh, but yeah, that was a very good book. So yeah, just keeping... In fact, gone a bit um, mad with the book buying. I've been buying uh, some books on American history and uh, as well as some more fictions. Oh, uh, one thing that I definitely want to do is get back into the Discworld novels. And I know there's a heck of a lot because I've probably decided to do the, the bonkers thing, which is start from the very beginning. Um, but you can kind of choose different narratives. You can like go with just the Rincewind stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, or, um, yeah. or the death uh, or the or the, witches. the witches. Yeah, yeah. So, actually, that is a good point. Um, but I've... Because I, I had the books years ago. Um, uh, but I ended up getting rid of them, which I kind of regret because I I really liked uh, Josh Kirby's um, covers, the original ones. Yeah, I started buying them again. I, I was getting the paperbacks mm. with the original artwork. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, yeah, because the, there was a obviously you could get the the Josh Kirby original ones. Then they phased those out. Then you had paperback. I just remember seeing them where it was just uh, basically black covers with a very simple image on. on of them than when they went through some other alliteration. Then they've gone back to the Josh Kirby illustrations, but they are still slightly altered. Um, and I wish I still kept kept my original paperbacks. Oh. Um, in fact, because I remember years ago, I remember uh, this going back to like when we were at school, once going to yours, and because you know, I always thought it was amazing the amount of books you had in your household, I just thought it was amazing. And I remember there was a whole, you basically had all the Discworld novels, didn't you? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was actually uh, at my mum's today. Mm-hmm. I haven't been around in about a year, actually. Um, it was actually yesterday. I was on Facebook looking at my Facebook memories, and it was like a year ago. I was at my mum's, so I I drove up today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just looking around the house, and the amount of books is unreal. They've got a whole kind of study area that's just basically a library with thousands of books <laughs> See, to me that's insane that, that's, that, and, that's such a, that's and amazing, i was looking i was like oh, i remember a lot of these books from my childhood mm. but there's just so so many books <laughs> <laughs> that's great i love that but anyway go back to the disc- so i've bought uh, the first two which is the color of magic and the light fantastic um so yeah it, uh, I, I look forward to it in fact because uh, when I, I i popped into the bookstore to, to buy them the um the shopkeeper was very chatty and he went you've got your work code out here yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I feel like those those two are good, easy reads. No, no. Sorry, what he meant. What, sorry, um, I didn't. He, he meant in terms of how many, how many I've got to read in terms of the Discworld series. He didn't mean. <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah. He didn't mean that. Oh, these two books are awful. I think that, that I remember them very, very fondly. They're not as um, arguably they're not as witty as the series would later become but they are I think very good and very imaginative and uh, you know Terry Pratchett's straight in there with a the satire but what he's doing there is satirising um, f- fantasy as a genre in general and then later on you're going to get things like Weird Sisters which uh, is it Weird Sisters I've got the right one which is basically yeah, parodying that's, Shakespeare that's the third one yes mm-hmm. so I look forward to getting around to that one I have to admit, I haven't actually seen the um, the Sky productions of um, the Color of Magic. I've I've actually seen one of them, which was Going Postal, mm. mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't seen Hogfather or or the other one with um, David Jason. 
Yeah, maybe I'll get around to, to watching them at some point. I've seen... I remember when uh, Postman came out, and I, I was watching that, and I couldn't get into it. Um, no. I'm f- um, I know there's always, constantly, rumours of movies in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows if that'll ever happen. Well, I understand that. I think it's Terry Pratchett's daughter who's pretty much in charge of his estate and his legacy. And she's, um, v- from what I can gather, is very keen to make sure that when it comes to adaptations, they, um, you know, they do a uh, respectable job. But from, I mean, keeping in mind, it's been quite a while since I've read this, so um, I may not be wholly accurate, but my memory of it is that apparently she's, when it comes to film adaptations, she wants them to be as loyal to the novels as possible. Um which I think is admirable in some respects, but I've always had the view, if if you've got a story in one medium and you're transposing it into another, which in this case is adapting a novel into a film, you cannot really do... You shouldn't really do a carbon copy because then what's the point? You know, you have yeah. the book, that's great. If you're making the effort of turning it into a TV series or a film, there has to be a, there has to be a reason of wanting to do that so the film has to stand up on its own merits and maybe do something a little bit different or emphasise certain aspects in a in a slightly different way to warrant its existence is, is sort of my take on it um, we see that we see that quite often where there's there's um, sometimes subtle or big differences between a, a book and a, and a movie mm-hmm. um, I know we've got Dune coming out um, I think in October yeah and if we look back at the David Lynch film, um, there's obviously, obviously it's got a lot of flaws, but there's a lot of um, differences there. Mm-hmm. I can't really comment because no, unfortunately I haven't read June the novel. In fact, I, um, yeah. right, uh, you probably think it's ridiculously snobby because at the end of the day it, it's it's the novel you're reading. Because when I went to get um, The Colour of Magic and the Light Fantastic, I actually went with the intention to to buy June, so uh, and I, and they had it obviously, and they had quite a nice cover of it. But there was a and it wasn't a stick; I couldn't take it off. But there was a big uh, circular thing of going soon to be a motion picture. I went, oh, oh, that was printed on the booth. <laughs> yeah, because so that was How because annoying. that was printed on the cover. That kind of went, oh, no. or even when it gets like the actual movie cover with the actors on the front of the paperback. That's when it's a bit. Weird. <laughs> it is, yeah. I've got, I've just got a slight aversion to that. I mean, it's ridiculous because at the end of the day, it's like, well, you're buying a book to read the book. It's not as if um, they've they've got the book and then stuck in as you know, slipped in bits of the screenplay in it or something. Yeah, it's just the cover. But for some reason, it's just something that slightly bothers me. Yeah. I know I'm not the if only anything, one. Aren't people aren't people going to think? Oh well, I'll wait. I'll just get them. I'll just see the movie. <laughs> Yeah, actually, talk, talking of that, because um, Arrow Videos is <laughs> plugging them now. Um, next month, August, th- uh, and I pre-ordered it. They've actually uh, uh, re-releasing uh, June on Blu-ray with a few more bits and pieces than previous. Um... Yeah, I've I've noticed um, it's probably sold out now, but Zavi has done some uh, cool limited edition steelbooks um, with 
a big kind of gatefold box and artwork and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting with the Dune film because uh, I really like David Lynch. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a massive fan simply because I haven't, I, I can't claim that because I haven't seen all his movies. Um, but I, I really do like David Lynch, and of course, Dune is is, is the one film in his catalogue which sort of stands out, and it's the one movie he doesn't like to talk about. Um, because it's not his vision. Uh, he learned an yeah. awful lot, which he he knew that being a film director, you have to have final cut. But he went through this experience and he didn't get final cut, and it kind of this, you know, it actually proved it. Um, yeah. But certain good things came out of it. So um, it's the first time that he worked with Kyle MacLachlan, which he would later work with in his movie Blue Velvet, which is just fantastic, one of my all-time favorites. And of course. Uh, in uh, works with him in Twin Peaks as well, so you know some positives come out of it. But um... yeah, it's such a bizarre film, but I love it. Mm. Um, and you know the music's amazing and the whole tone of it. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing quite like. No, it. no, I mean that's the thing. It's sort of uh, I can see why David Lynch has sort of disowned it, but at the same time I can't help. It is a flawed film. But there's still plenty there to, to enjoy. I mean, the production design of it in particular. It's, it's like what you've said, Rob. There's nothing like it visually. It's very, it is very much its own thing. Um, and, and who can forget the image of Sting in nothing but those strange pants with a bird on the front or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. It's a very visually striking film. Yeah. Um, and then... Like we're talking about differences between the book and the film, and there is quite a few there. And then there's a there's a part of the story where the movie just skips ahead leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, a lot of time passes, and they're like, well, this happened and this happened and this happened, and then before you know it, it's like, what? It takes so long later. <laughs> but yeah, that's coming out in August, so I pre-ordered it, so I'm getting that next month. So um, look forward to that. In fact. Um, uh, I used to have it on DVD years ago, but you know, you know, it's just like uh, I was a bit strapped for cash, and it was just like, right, okay, just sell stuff. So, um, so I sold one of my uh, all-time favorite films, which is *The Madness of King George*, and I've been really in the mood to to watch it. It's been years since I've watched it, so I went to buy it again. I'm really surprised it's not available on Blu-ray. Um, it's still you can only you know can only watch it on crummy DVD. Um, oh. Perfectly watchable. Actually, it actually got delivered today, so that's good. But I was just surprised because you know it's an adaption of uh, an Alan Bennett play, and Alan Bennett actually wrote the film script as well, so it's got that. It has it has Nigel Hawthorne in it, Ian Holm, uh, Helen Mirren's in it, and I'm sure it won an Oscar or two. And it was you know, and so for a very well respected film, uh, I'm just surprised it hasn't had the Blu-ray treatment. Yeah, uh, yeah, because it is one of my all-time favorite films. I just, I just love it. Um, but anyway, yeah, bought that recently, so I'll be watching. Uh, I'll be watching that at some point. That's cool. Um, I haven't watched much this week. It's kind of school holidays for the kids, mm-hmm. so um, just been trying to get out and about. Uh, was at the beach today. That was nice, and we've been watching. We haven't seen the new Fast and Furious yet, but we thought maybe we'll watch all of them in 
chronological order because we haven't actually done that before which it sounds like a lot but it really it just means you watch three after six <laughs> right okay that's pretty much yeah. it <laughs> so then we started that and we're like let's skip two <laughs> so it's a bit <laughs> and then we'll, so we went from two to four and then kind of gave up <laughs> so we may get back to it this week yeah, talking of films, I was uh, talking to a friend recently and they told me about... I'd never heard of it. Um, uh, I think it's just came out. It's a movie called Pig uh, with Nicolas Cage in it. I just go, what's this? So I, I watched the trailer and I think it's... Um, I think it's been described as a return of form for Nicolas Cage as an actor. Um in other words, basically, it's him doing a, an interesting, um, serious uh, role um, rather than, you know, Ghost Rider or whatever. Um, and that looks really interesting. It's um, he's Apparently, it looks at the darker side of the food industry. But it starts off with the fact that, you know, he's, um, he's a guy who lives out in the countryside and he has a pig and he, they, they, um, they get truffles. And then one day he's attacked and his pig is stolen. So then he goes looking for the pig. And I thought, oh, it's, it's going to be a, a quirky comedy type thriller thing. But no, when you're watching like the trailer... Like National Treasure or something where he's hunting down the pig. Yeah, but uh, it actually looks a, a lot much darker than that. And I think it's it's uh, it, it looks interesting, put it that way. And I said, like, all right, okay. So that was a movie I wasn't aware of until recently. So I said, like, okay, I might, I might check that out and see what that... See if that's any good. I d- it's one of those where I, th- I get the impression that it'll be one of those movies where you either like it or you don't. I don't think anyone will go, yeah, it's okay. It looks too. Uh, I don't know whether quirky's the word, but slightly unusual. Put it that way, and that's piqued my oh. interest. Want to check out Pig? Yes, Pig. Uh, so. Coming up today, we'll be discussing the episode itself, being Dalek. Uh, we'll hear some listeners' responses and um, chat a little bit about behind the scenes and some of the tie-in media as well. A quick reminder, follow us on social, facebook.com slash cloisterbell, twitter at podcastbell, instagram cloister underscore bell. You can support us on Patreon to get early access and more at patreon.com slash Cloister Bell. Um, now that's the boring stuff out of the way, let's get on to the plot of Dalek. The Ninth Doctor and Rose Tyler arrive in 2012 to answer a distress signal and meet a collector of alien artifacts um, who has one living specimen. However, the Doctor is horrified to find out that the creature is a member of a race he thought was destroyed. A Dalek. Cast for this episode: the Doctor, Chris Felton, Rose, Billy Piper. Um, who's this guy? Polkowski. See the guy that vanished at the beginning. Um, Stephen Beckingham, Henry Van Staten, Corey Johnson, Goddard, Anna Louise Plowman, Adam Bruno Langley, Simmons, Nigel Whitney, Brywater, John Schwab. DeMaggio, Jenna Carpenter. The Commander, Joe Montana. Dalek Operator, uh, Barnaby Edwards. And Dalek Voice, Nick Briggs. The writer for this episode was Robert Shearman. 
Uh, he'd also wrote some, well, he's wrote a lot of things, but with regards to the Ninth Doctor, he's wrote The Cruel Sea, which was a Ninth Doctor comic for Doctor Who magazine, and Pitter Patter, which was a Ninth Doctor short story in the 2006 Doctor Who annual. Uh, the director for this one, Joe Ahern, who also directed Bad Wolf, Boomtown, Father's Day, and The Parton of the Ways. Um, and then he must have parted ways because he was only the directing episode one, um, series one episodes. The big producer man for this, uh, Phil Collinson. Uh, this was adapted from a Big Finish story uh, called Jubilee, also written by Robert Sherman. And the visual effects was provided by The Mill. Uh, has it been a while since you've watched this one, Liam? Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Um, I can't quite remember. Um, it may have actually been... It may actually have been pre-2012, actually. Uh, I only say that because it's the year the story's set in. Uh, right, I was going to say, what's the significance there? What else? Yeah, no, it's the only reason. What are you talking oh, about? Do you remember 2012? Those were the days. I'm, I miss that. Happy times. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that was probably the last time that I that I watched it. So a heck of a long time ago. So yeah. How about you? Probably longer. I probably watched it a couple of times on DVD mm-hmm. uh, in the years after. But no, I haven't watched it in a long time. Um, still very memorable. Mm-hmm. And enjoyable, yeah. So, um, for the sake of the podcast, I went on to iPlayer. Um, but I did hunt out my massive TARDIS limited edition DVD set <laughs> just to look at look at look there some of the behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's break down the story um, and have a bit of a chat. So the Doctor and Rose arrive inside of Van Staten's underground museum, uh, his vault, and like you said, they arrive in the year 2012. Um, it's worth remembering that in the Russell T narrative, at least, um, because of events in Stolen Earth in particular, the world was fully aware of the Daleks. But I guess, narratively, this stuff hasn't even happened yet. So, yeah, nobody know- nobody knows about the Daleks here. The- later on, they should. And then eventually, that would get redconned and they shouldn't. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> so some of the alien artifacts they find include a meteorite, moon dust, the myelometer from the Roswell spacecraft. Uh, the spacecraft would later appear in the Tenth Doctor animated story Dreamland, um, and that same design uh, would appear later again in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Um, they find a stuffed Slitheen arm, uh, conveniently and of course that Cyberman head uh, I remember this felt like a gr- great moment because it was this tangible link to the original Doctor Who that we all knew um, because of course this is a continuation but you know it's, it's anyone's guess is, th- is this a slight a light reboot or a reimagining in any way um, but no you know there's there's the Cyberman head um, this particular design was the Revenge Head, which was the, like an evolution of the Cybermen we've seen 
in the Patrick Troughton story, The Invasion. Uh, now, I feel like an invasion head would have made more sense to be here. Do you think so, Liam? I see what you mean in terms of Cybermen having invaded Earth um, at this point. Yeah, that would have made sense. But I think um, there's something about the the visual style of it. I think it still works and the fact that um, the revenge design of the Cybermen, they're the only ones who have a, a um, guns implanted at the top of their head. So I'm wondering if, if that was the reason why they chose this design over the others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I do prefer that design. Mm-hmm. I think we would later see an invasion ahead when Kate Stewart would drop one at the Cybermen's feet outside. Um, oh, is this um, you, Dark, dark water. water? Yeah. yeah. When she's like, you left this behind and just dumps <laughs> it down. <laughs> When Van Staten's helicopter's descending, which is actually stock footage, um, we hear the word Bad Wolf 1 descending. We'd learn, I think it was in the commentary, that Robert Sherman did want this whole elaborate helicopter landing, Van Staten getting out, this big entrance. Um, but of course, um, these these things kind of get changed over time because... Uh, of restraints and stuff like that mm. but that, um, yeah there was a, the, the intention was there <laughs> so we're introduced to some of the key players in the story Van Staten he owns the internet of course Diana Goddard uh, she's an interesting one she's clearly quite intelligent uh, we meet the English kid Adam uh, who's been brought on to analyse and catalogue all the alien tech that comes in and at the time this came out, he was quite recognisable, having played Todd on Coronation Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he not to you? No, no, I remember. Uh, yeah, he he was a uh, yeah he was well known, and I think got an awful lot of publicity because he played uh, a character which uh, got an awful lot of attention in the press. Who, uh, if I remember rightly. The storyline was um, comes to terms with his sexuality because he turns out to be gay, um, and I say turns out because I think it, originally he hadn't been written with that intention, uh, but later they decided that he would become a gay character, so that was written in, uh, and it was the first gay kiss on British television, I think, or certainly in a soap. I think I'm trying to remember. Did it predate or come after Queer as Folk? Um, I don't know because I wasn't really aware of that no. of Queer's Folk but I do remember watching Corey yeah. and watching that whole storyline uh, unfold yeah and it got talk. it did get an awful lot of attention because of that I think it was it might be, it may have been the, the first gay kiss in a soap opera or pre-Watershed because I think yeah didn't Queer's Folk come out in 1999 but obviously that was oh, that was right. an adult comedy drama uh, on Channel 4. But anyway, yeah, uh, Bruno Langley was very uh, recognisable. So him appearing in, in, in Doctor Who was... Because I think he left Coronation Street at this point. He would later co- he would later come back. Um, but yeah, he was yeah, he, he, he was very well known yeah. in, in Britain at the time. So um, Van Staten makes his intruder window joke, which the 10th Doctor would go on to repeat at some point even though the Doctor never heard the joke in their story. 
we meet Simmons, who's busy torturing the Dalek, but he seems to enjoy it, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He's a bit crazy. Uh, yeah, he's a bit nuts. Uh, the Doctor meets Van Staten, and instantly this this battle of egos that um, that Rose notices. Um, so we get these great interactions between the two. Do you like the way Van Staten's been written and portrayed, and how it comes across? Yeah, I do. I, I like the character. I like how he's written. I think they have a very good actor uh, playing the part. I like it. Um, this whole way of how he's introduced, though, I don't think quite works because of the direction. I think when I was uh, when I was watching it uh, this you know this time, uh, I could see what the intention was. I think it was supposed to be you know very fast paced. Um, Attempts of sort of witty repartee or something, um, but it doesn't quite work. I think that the scene doesn't have the pace that's needed. I think it needed to be a bit more punchy, uh, and I don't. It, it it's not a failure, but I think when I was watching it, I, I could see what the intention was in terms of how how everything was written, but I think in terms of just how it was directed, just felt a little bit too loose. Um, Maybe not in terms of the the, the the comedy intention, but the thing that it, I think it, it sort of reminded me of was I don't know. Have you seen the movie Brazil? Uh, no. All right. Okay. Uh, movie I recommend. But there's a, there's a moment in it when the main character Sam Lowry could because he's recently been promoted, and that he arrives on the floor of, the, of his new office building, and then he encounters the character Ian Richardson with this huge group of. There's this huge entourage surrounding him, uh, and they're just they're constantly marching to and fro, and it's it's slightly comedic. But the way that it's shot and directed, and just sort of the pace of that moment, I think was what maybe Robert Sherman's intention as a writer in terms of writing that scene of, of having that sort of that very fast pace direction, which here doesn't quite. I mean, you may think I'm being overly critical of it, but I just feel like it was. Um, didn't hit the it mark. didn't quite hit Maybe. the mark, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. It, yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't way. lack subtlety, um, but then you know, I don't. I don't mind that. I just think, and I'll come. I'll come on to this comment later. I, yeah. I'll look into this a bit uh, later on. Um, but I like his introduction to the Doctor when they've got the musical instruments. Yes, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, um, manages to work it and just tosses it aside mm-hmm. yeah and that that kind of sums him up like he's getting all these he's like a kid who gets all these new toys then just discards them. yeah and as I say I, I've got I mean I like the character in terms of how he's written and the and, and the performance uh, I just think the, the the direction doesn't marry up fully his character changed a lot through some of the rewrites I believe originally Van Staten um, had a wife. Adam was his son. And one of the things was the wife kind of asking the Dalek, does um, does Van Staten still love him or, or something like that? And it, it went down this whole other path. Oh, okay. I knew that uh, I knew that Adam's uh, the, the Adam character was originally supposed to be um, Van Stratton's son, uh, but I didn't know there was a whole thing of having the wife involved as well. So Van Stratton puts the Doctor inside the vault with the Dalek. He doesn't waste much time there. 
he likes to he, he watches their interactions. So the reveal of the Dalek is really good. If only it had been kept a secret. I don't know if that was ever considered that they would keep it a secret, or at least not show the reveal. But, no, I yeah. don't think it was because um, I've forgotten which of the Doctor Who classic DVDs it was on, but there was a there was a special feature and. Uh, may seem a bit odd for being on a classic Doctor Who DVD, but they were talking about how they were bringing back the revised series. And um, the, there was this this whole idea of... Because not forgetting, um, we I think, you know, perhaps we take it for granted, but this was an attempt at bringing Doctor Who back. Um, there was an attempt in 1996 to bring the series back. It hadn't worked. And in terms of continuous... Uh, television production it'd been off the air since 1989 and apart from you know people such as ourselves who loved the show and knew how good it was it, it largely was a bit of a laughing stock to some ex- you know to some extent bringing it back in 2005 you know they didn't know how this was going to work um one of the producers thought that well, you know you've got you would uh, start off with your biggest strength let's launch the series with you know, bringing the most iconic monster back, Dalek. Russell T. Davis said, no, 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 you don't do that. You hold back on that. And what we'll do is, in case the viewing figures are flagging and people aren't getting to grips with the series, we will have, you know, we've launched the show already with, with Rose and everything and got the whole publicity going. If we need another surge in the publicity to get people like really on track with it, then we bring the Daleks in and we have a sort of second relaunch, if you like, in the middle of the series or roughly round about the middle. Which, uh, and Daleks, the sixth episode of uh, of this season. So it is you know, sort of in the middle. Of a biggest, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea... So I don't think it was an intention to, um, to keep the Dalek uh, a secret from that because... They, they wanted to bring the Daleks back because they're a great creation, why wouldn't you? But it was also very carefully considered from Russell T. Davis's point of view of just going, well, we don't know whether it's going to be a success from the beginning and we have to really structure the series in such a way where if we need to get you know a, a big boost of, of popularity again in case things are waning, um, then we can go, well, we're bringing the Daleks back. Interested now? So... That would have been a, a a bit of a misfire if they brought the Daleks into episode one. Mm-hmm. And that um, was the thing when the... Considering it's a story about Rose and you're introduced to the Doctor uh, and the Daleks. Is just too mm-hmm. much. Well, that, actually, that's what that producer said. And I said, when, when Russell T. Davis explained the reason behind that, I said, of course, you're right. That, of course, that's what you do. So, um, you, know, it's a, you know, people have different ideas and, and all the rest of it. But Russell T. Davis... Russell T. Davis clearly knew what he was doing. Um, and because when this was being made and when it was being broadcast back in March 2005, um, no one knew whether people would have taken to it or not. And, you know, obviously they did because we're still here and the show, you know, the show is still continuing, which is great. But it was very carefully considered. And of course, the Daleks are revealed at the end of the series as well. But that was revealed in the next entry, <laughs> annoyingly. <laughs> but uh, in that sense, it, it works because uh, the, the Dalek works as 
as its own story, but it also works in terms of reintroducing the Daleks to an entirely new generation and bringing them into the new series. But it also means that uh, because this is one so this is one Dalek, and we see what it's capable of. So that when so when you do come to the the season finale, which is two episodes, and you have thousands, if not millions, of Daleks, and you're going well. If that's what one Dalek can do, you know, and so it actually establishes the threat of the season finale as well. Yes, I know. When the Doctor and the Dalek are having their interactions, we get a fair bit of details about the Time War that we haven't been told at this point. The Doctor himself destroyed the Daleks, and the Time Lords burnt with them because it was revealed in the End of the World that. Uh, that the Time Lords were gone, so this is the first time we're getting any information about that. And the Doctor's clearly still a bit hot-headed from the Time War. You know, he's quite aggressive here. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he tries to kill the Dalek. Um, he tries to exterminate him, as he says, uh, until he's stopped, at least, when they can intervene. Um, so this is like an unexpected turn for the Doctor, don't you think? Yeah, I think I think so because um, Christopher Eccleston's Doctor ha- has an edge to him throughout his entire run, but there was a a very caring side, really. When you think about, you know, it's there in Rose, it's there in the End of the World, and so on. Um, but there is a there is a no nonsense approach to him. Um, so, but yeah, it. Um, it, it shows another side of the Doctor and how how emotional and raw everything is with him in terms of the time war. And it, I mean, not wishing to leap ahead, we'll talk about it properly uh, later on. But of course, uh, it even the way that he goes on even takes Rose by surprise. And us, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. So Rose is paired off with Adam, uh, and he shows her the workshop that he's got, and he also goes on about how. Um, oh, aliens must be real, and this is the best job in the world, which is kind of a bit of a jab at what. It's not the best job in the world because Rose has got that job in here. I think this is where there is like an attraction between the two, but I think it 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 also does stem from the fact that they've got this same passion here, and um, because Adam believes in aliens and he'd love to go out there and experience all that. I, because we we've reviewed uh, the long game uh, earlier uh, in a in an earlier podcast, which is the the episode which follows this one, and it, these are the only two episodes which feature him as a companion, and he's sort of uh, brought in as really as a sort of explanation that not anyone can can join the TARDIS. You have to be someone quite special, and the Doctor has to really respect you. Um, yeah. And he's promptly dumped at the end of the next episode, uh, I think, to to the merriment of, of most viewers. Um, uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting that you know clearly there is a little bit of a, a romantic uh, thing brewing, but I don't think I think we even know that it's a bit sort of it's 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 frivolous really, um, yeah. because even even Rose obviously finds him attractive. Um, which isn't, you know, which you can see because um, Adam Langley. I know I'm getting into <laughs> dodgy water here because I, I, I think he's, um, I think he's been found guilty of sexual assault. That's why we don't hear much from him. But 
so um but yeah you you could see why rose would uh would find him attractive because you know um handsome chap but um but really i think it's there's nothing really that meaningful underneath that other than the fact that she finds him you know physically attractive and there's nothing else much going on yes he has an interest in the stars and everything like that so there is yeah. that bit of a connection as you said but it's also even still i don't i don't see much chemistry there no no no, no neither neither do i and i think that's the thing of going maybe it's there's a, there's a slight physical attraction there but that's all it is and i think that goes into the fact of what really what the purpose of his character is there for which is you know which is what i said which is and not everyone can join the TARDIS crew and he's promptly dumped uh, at the end of the, the following episode, the long game. And even even the Doctor at the end going, you know, he's kind of, he's a bit pretty, isn't he? And that's all that's going on with him. <laughs> There's something else mm. there. Um, yeah. So it's it's not, I mean, so the, the way that uh, everything's established, it, you know, we're not supposed to really connect with the character that much. I think it's it's actually quite a surprise. I remember being very surprised back in two thousand and five, going, "He's joining the t- him." Oh, all right, okay. Where's this going? So we get this cool scene in the elevator with Van Staten and the Doctor, and Van Staten is interested in who would design the Daleks. So the Doctor kind of indirectly tells him of Davros, mm-hmm. a genius, a man who was king of his own world. And you see Van Staten is quite intrigued here. Mm-hmm. So, cool little scene in the in the elevator. Um, Goddard explains to the Doctor that the Dalek uh, has been on Earth for almost 50 years, kept by private collectors. And I, I never really thought was that a bit of a meta-reference, almost 50 years, collectors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But uh, yeah, a little bit of backstory to the Dalek there. Um, Van Staten's took notice of the fact that the Doctor isn't exactly human, so he's tied up and scanned. Um, apparently, there was some complaints about this scene because it looks like he's kind of pinned up like Jesus. Oh, I, d- I didn't make the analogy when I when I watched it. No, I just thought. Yeah, I don't know what I thought. <laughs> no, I just uh, no, I. I think people are seeing something that isn't there. The the are criticisms <laughs> that can be leveled, that, you know, the, with the Jesus imagery later on. But that's when David Tennant's the Doctor. This no, uh, you know, no. he's he's strapped vertically to. I mean, you could actually criticize it for being maybe depicting sadomasochism. <laughs> BDSM or whatever it's called. <laughs> I can't pronounce. Do you know which word I'm trying to pronounce? Sadomasochism. Do you know what I'm trying yeah. to pronounce? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to like try and pronounce it. No, I, it, oh, it's a bit too much of a tongue twister. It's uh, anyway. Hopefully, the listeners will know what word I'm trying. You could actually criticize from, yeah. for that, I suppose. But no, I don't think that, I don't think there's any Jesus imagery here. No. <laughs> Hang on, I'm gonna sadomachis mechanism. Oh, I thought I nearly had. I oh, forget it anyway. Let's move on. Just, just quit waiting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the doctor's tied up, and he pleads with Van Staten to warn him of how dangerous the Dalek is. And we get the first look at the Dalek, at the Doctor's two hearts. Mm-hmm. So that's a first reveal for the new viewers. 
of the show. So after Adam shows the Dalek being tortured on the CCTV to Rose, um, he takes her down to the vault and she's given a bit of a sob story by the Dalek. It tries to gain her sympathy, but unfortunately she touches the outer casing and it extracts her genetic material and she's able to it's able to revive itself mm-hmm. um it's mentioned earlier that other people have tried to touch the dalek um, but have burst into flames um but the difference here being that rose is a carrier of like background radiation um soaked up from traveling through the vortex and this was explained in season two's doomsday when we get a, a brief flashback to this was that cl- made clear enough in this episode was it mentioned at some point i think it's made clear and yeah uh yeah i think it's made clear enough i, I, I well, yes i'm sure it does, doesn't it mention that it uh yeah took the energy of a time traveler or something, yes yeah yeah something so there, there is a line of dialogue which which clearly explains it so yeah i think that's fine yeah i did hear on the commentary that this sequence was meant to be different uh, Rose would have stuck her hand inside the grill and it would have scratched her and literally took some DNA from her um, but that was changed because it would have been a bit a bit too graphic the hand thing kind of works yeah yeah it, uh, it does work and uh, yeah. I've got sadomasochism that's it I said it there you go yeah <laughs> you've been thinking about that this whole time <laughs> <laughs> sorry Rob I suddenly got distracted uh, what we're talking about? Oh, Doctor Who. All right, okay. Yeah. Uh, boring. Um, right, yes. Yep, yeah, so we're on to the sink plunger now. The re- the revived Dalek surprisingly kills Simmons um, with its plunger. A first for the series. Um, and it also kind of opens the cell door with its plunger mm-hmm. in one of the rare scenes where we actually see the sucker kind of changed shape and f- morphed like the form it needs. Mm. I think it might, that might, might have been in the commentary or somewhere else that Robert Sherman's wife kind of mocked the Daleks um, for, as being a bit ridiculous because they had this plunger. So I think that kind of inspired him to kind of give it a use and make it a bit more menacing. Mm-hmm. The Dalek drains power from the entire west coast of North America to reconstruct its outer casing and it also downloads the internet so all that porn knows all, yes that's referenced in the novelization I think is it? yeah the porn <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant yeah and all that <laughs> oh right, okay I just thought oh bloody hell right okay <laughs> I think I need a <laughs> what uh... What has the Dalek learned? So we see some more of the Dalek's abilities. It uses its weapon to kill people and the entire corridor is um, kind of wiped out. Um, we see this negative light from the Dalek weapon, which is kind of what we've seen in the older stories. But also we see the bones of the victims, which is much like the previous Daleks TV story, which was Remembrance of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Um which was something I liked from that story. Yes. And I can't, I can't, it kind of struck us that maybe it's been followed, followed through into this story. Did, did that, um, did you think of that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Reminiscent of that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the bullets fired at the Daleks seem to fade away when we have this kind of matrix bullet time sequence. Yes, yeah, yeah. And sadly, the Dalek doesn't like jump back and try and dodge the bullets. It's <laughs> <laughs> not that I'd like to see. Yeah. yeah. Or Davros to um, do that. Yeah, but the bullets kind of melt away or dissolve uh, or something. Oh, we also see the Dalek shoulder section rotate independently of the the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know if we'll ever see this again in the show. You might know differently. Funny enough, I don't think we do. We may see it in the the two-part finale of this season. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, oh, it's just struck me. We do. We, we do see it at some point. In this story, um, we have the actual practical, practical shot of the Dalek in the corridor. Mm. The sequence of the shoulder rotating was actually the CGI model. Yeah. But if, I've just remembered in the Jodie Whittaker story Resolution with the Junkyard Dalek, that that particular Dalek doesn't have anyone in. It's completely remote controlled. And doesn't the shoulder section spin on that? I feel in the warehouse. You may be right. Sorry, Rob, I cannot for the life of me remember. Vaguely familiar. <laughs> it's a Jodie Whittaker episode. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, you might be right. I, I generally don't remember. Um, yeah. But it's it is astonishing that it's something because I think it's a great thing to introduce for the Daleks, uh, and I think it works very well. And it's really staggering. It's one of those things that was never seen really for an awfully long time. If it if it, it has been um, the junkyard Dalek, the fact that it was introduced in a Christopher Eccleston episode and it hasn't been seen since Jodie Week, that's a long time. Mm. You know, it's it's a very obvious neat thing to do. Um, and it is that element of making them uh, much more difficult to deal with. Yeah, it almost makes me think of um, what we've missed in the um, the victory of the Daleks design, where they had all these concealed weapons that we never got to see. Mm-hmm. That yeah. would have been another kind of CGI sequence. Yeah, that would have been great. Mm-hmm. So Rose is buzzing that they've reached a, set, a staircase. Because, you know, the Dalek clearly has no legs. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, there was this infamous TV interview with Christopher Eccleston where he mistakenly told us that he was leaving the show. Um, <laughs> and in that, he revealed that the Daleks have finally conquered stairs. And they were intrigued to find out how. Have none of these people seen a rem- Remembrance? Dare I say revelation? Yes, you're right, actually, because I forget that. Oh, you could actually go, well, it's sort of hinted at in the chase. If there's no one watched the chase, who are these people? Um, No, funny enough, it it is one of those things that when this was getting talked about, it was like, and finally, the Daleks are able to go upstairs for the first time ever. And, And, you know, us being Doctor Who fans, you're just going, what? No, classic Doctor Who got there first. It's all there in the first, you know, uh, 26 years of the of the you know the first 26 years it's in there and it's you know admittedly it's at the very end but the fact that the dogs are able to go upstairs is there yeah and no but, one remembered but, I mean like but the more thing time is, has passed between Dalek and now than had between Remembrance and a Dalek sorry say that again it sounds like a riddle sorry <laughs> I'm just saying more time has passed between Dalek and today than had transpired between Remembrance of the Daleks and Dalek. 
Oh, jeez. No, yet, yet no one remembers. But this, this well, death. I was just about to say this, but the the problem the problem is with this is that really, when you think about it, well, of course people were going to think that the Daleks never kind of stayed because how many people watched Remembrance of the Daleks when it was first broadcast? I mean, it's a great story and it's a classic. It's brilliant. But the, you know, unfortunately, it was the last day. You know, the you know, the audience figures were dwindling. Um, not that many people would have watched it, relatively speaking. Um, mm. So I can kind of get it. <laughs> um, the one thing that because um, it doesn't bother me, it doesn't bother me as much as it did when I first watched it. But I still think uh, it's a bit silly. Um, so they're, they're on the stairwell and Rosa said, oh, you know, this thing won't be able to go upstairs. And there's a, there's a bit of a moment and then you see the Dalek go up. But the fact it says elevate, um, I remember that really bothered me when I, first, when I first watched it in 2005. It doesn't bother me as much now, but I, I still think it's unnecessary. Because imagine... Well, I love it because it's unnecessarily. It's, it's unnecessary. Oh, right, you I love it for that it reason. just to taunt them, yeah. See, just, doing, just, just for the sake of it. See... I think it would have been... Imagine if, you know, if, if nothing was said and it just looks at them and then it just starts hovering up having not said anything. It just does it. Hmm. I just think that, yeah. me personally speaking, I just think that would be more effective. Yeah. I kind of disagree. I like it. No, I'm, I'm actually you know. watching that scene now. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, it's fair enough. There might be you know, lots of people who agree with you. It's just it's a slight personal bugbear of mine. I just think it would have been... The, one of the... It's in the episode Mission to the Unknown, so I'm going back to the William Hartnell era, which was um, it was a prelude to the Daleks' master plan. It didn't have the Doctor in it or anything like that. It was just this one-off episode to set up this, you know, this big Dalek episode that was around the corner. And the main character, I think, I've forgotten the character's name now, but he he stumbles across the Dalek. Unfortunately, we've only got the audio, audio recording of this. But I can't help... Well, we now have the reconstructed episode. Yeah, which I haven't watched. Uh, oh, right, okay. Uh, have you watched it? Yeah. Oh, yes, you have. Uh, we talked about this quite a while ago now. I, I need to watch it still. It'll be interesting. But I just think it, one of the best... It's such a shame because I think one of the best Dalek moments there's ever been is one that, that we can't watch, apart from the reconstruction. And it's this moment when the Dalek doesn't say anything. He just encounters the Dalek... The Dalek doesn't say exterminate or anything like that, and it just kills him. Dalek doesn't say anything, and I just find that really chilling, and I think it's just a great really moment. Really cold, yeah. You know, uh, the That's Dalek cool. doesn't have to say anything, he just does it. Um, and it's just sort of like one of those comparative moments. I just think uh, I just think it would have been really, really just this strong moment, you know, seeing the characters, because you can see the logic behind it. You've got this, this tank thing. How on earth is it going to get up the stairs? And I just imagine if there was just that... Uh, uh, you know, a beat, and then it just does it, and it just see it elevated up without having it said elevate. I just think it would have been better personally, but I mean, it's only one word. It's just it's just like, this episode's atrocious. It's just a slight book there, but you know, I I can yeah. live with it. So the Doctor tells Van Staten, who's clearly beginning to grasp how bad this all is, um, that the Dalek will destroy all other life forms that it comes into contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's the ultimate racial cleansing. Yeah. Um, I'm glad this was touched upon in the first Dalek story of the new era, mm-hmm. kind of explaining what what they're all about. 
Yeah, very much so. I think Robert Shearman does a very, very good job at really establishing the Daleks again. Um, he establishes uh, the history that they have with the Doctor, um, bringing bringing in this new element of the Time War. Uh, we see how dangerous it is, um, how intelligent it is, and yeah, and then what they're all about psychologically. Uh, he yeah. did, you know, and it, it all flows very well. So every, it's really, you know, the, the Dalek, what the Daleks are about, stripped down and just told to you straight, but in a very good way. It's, it's, yeah, as you say, it's, it's all in there, and it's he does a very, very good job telling you that at each step of the way. Yeah, um, I guess there's always this danger that if you don't inform the audience um, enough about what the Daleks are about. It might not have the right effect. Um, it's hard. It's hard to gauge. Like, how much do the viewers know? Yeah, that that is true. I mean, in terms of this episode, I mean, it could have very easily been said. You know, this was a thing that the Doctor once battled. Uh, there was this war. These were the things that he fought. Mm. It could have easily just been left at that. Really, that you've got the. You know, you've got that information there and going. Um, you know, they're a nasty piece of work. The Doctor's already established that. You know they go around killing they are a menace yeah and you could have left it there and I know that in um, um, you know the Potting of the Ways episode it is it is mentioned there again so it could have been something held off and explained in that story but no he Robert Schumann does a very you know great job of doing all that and it, it, you know he, he doesn't take the, you know he takes the effort of going and this is what they're about because for for an awful lot of people, this would have been the very first time that they would have been introduced to the Daleks, and it takes us right back because it's there in the very first Dalek story. Uh, you know, it's actually interesting. It says, you know, that there's there's an explanation for what they're about. It's a dislike for the unlike. Um, mm-hmm. That race hate, and so from that point on, that that element of race hate has really been there throughout. And it's it, as you said, Rob. It's great that it gets mentioned again, and so it's like right. So that's the reason behind it. Yeah. So the team of soldiers seem to be pretty overconfident. Um, They think they can easily defeat the Dalek. Um, No luck, though. Comes to a shocking end. Can it electrocute the... uh... (laughs) Was that a pun, Rob? (laughs) I love that. Uh, This is one of my favourite moments of the episode because, you know, when we show... You know, the, the Doctor's told us, you know, how very intelligent the Dalek is and we've had little bits of you know hints of that but this is a you know but that intelligence was right okay he's the Dalek has used that intelligence to get out of a locked room he's used that intelligence to gain more information now it's using that intelligence to actually kill people and it's like bloody hell that that combination of of you know intelligence and the ability to kill is a a horrible combination and we see it and the fact that um yeah Dalek uh, activates the sprinkler system, elevates again, then uses the ray just to electrocute everyone. It's a, it's a very powerful moment. And I love how, um, even though it needs to break out this facility, it's just kind of going at its own pace. It's just going slowly. It's, it's confident. It'll it'll uh, it'll leave and yeah. do what it needs to do. But there's also the fact that the Dalek is relishing in it as well, because the Doctor, mm. you know, th- uh, because at this, because the Dalek had um, uh, brought down all the CCTV, and then brings it back up, and the Doctor says it wants us to see this. 
and so it's, yeah. it's relishing in the fact that it it's good at what it does and wants everyone yeah. you know, the, you know and, it's, and the doctor and the dalek have a bit of a chat over the monitor mm-hmm. um which i love that i love that whole scene yeah and that you know that that killer line of um you would make a good dalek yeah it's like why why don't you just die yeah i i, I do like that scene. and again it's you know uh, christopher eccleston really um you know playing that part incredibly well I mean, he always did. You know, he's always a very good actor. Yeah. You know, uh, in and out of Doctor Who, seen him in many things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he, he's a very good, strong, powerful, dramatic actor. Uh, yeah. And getting someone like that to play the part, it's it seems like that where you go, yeah, he he was perfect casting. And yeah, and in that scene where he's talking over the monitor and he screams at the Dalek, mm. he actually kind of dribbles. <laughs> um, when he's screaming it just flies out his mouth and it's, it's, it's on his lip there um, and it was mentioned to him but but uh, Chris Vettelson just said no um, you know this is the doctor's meant to be ugly and angry keep it in alright <laughs> so I wonder where we're going with this alright okay fine <laughs> there I just got you a very good actor but he dribbles Liam <laughs> <laughs> no it wasn't just randomly when he, someone else was saying that <laughs> It was when he was screaming, "Why don't you just die?" <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's like that moment, you know, when um, Timothy Dalton plays Rassilon. It was like a whole. He scene. does that, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, just spitting everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like the cameraman was right in front of him at the time. He's a yeah, good. I mean, that Timothy Dalton is a very good actor, but he just gobs on everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that? Um, I'm trying to think of the episode. Um, oh yes, I think it was an episode of Friends with Gary Oldman. Um, he was an actor in a like, uh, a war movie with Joey, and uh, all his lines, Gary Oldman is just spitting in Joey's face. <laughs> okay. And he's like, oh, he's getting a. Uh, Joey's keep like wiping his eyes in between. <laughs> In between lines, and then in, be- in between takes, Joey speaks to Gary Oldman. He says, "You keep spitting in my face." And he says, "Oh no, it's a, it's an actor thing." <laughs> <laughs> and then, like Joey's just spit, literally spits in his eyes. <laughs> oh, I need to see that. I've never seen that. That just sounds funny. Huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Joey's like, "Oh, maybe I should wear some sunglasses or something." <laughs> but it like, and Chandler's like. Yeah, because Ray-Ban was the official sponsor of World War Two, <laughs> And Joey's like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's an after thing. Surprised it doesn't have its own category in the Oscars. <laughs> and the best spitter goes to... The Doctor rings Rose and tells her a leg it because the bulkheads are closing. Um, unfortunately, she doesn't make it in time. It was an interesting risk for the doctor to take. Um, I doubt Tennant would have took that risk. And we we do see the Dalek, well, we hear the Dalek fire, and we believe she's dead. Well, I don't think we actually believe, but I'm sure many kids did. Um, did you think she died? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, God, um, he's actually took the gamble on Rose's life. Mm. 
So the doctor has a rant at Van Staten about um, how he did this. So he's blaming Van Staten for Rose's death now, and uh, how he's took down Rose. Um, and I think you can see in Van Staten's eyes now that maybe the doctor was right about him. This new perspective Van Staten's having, he's, he's starting to see that maybe he was, he was wrong. So soon after that, it's revealed that the Dalek didn't actually kill Rose. So they didn't keep that air. Uh, <laughs> I'm shocked. Keep, hold shocked. off on that reveal for long. <laughs> yeah. um, and we learn that it's been contaminated by Rose's DNA and it feels conflicted somehow. So when this is revealed to the Doctor um, that Rose is still alive, he um, kind of sees his mistake and unlocks the bulkhead door anyway because um, he doesn't want to be responsible for killing Rose again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a little lesson for the Doctor. <laughs> um, as the dog begins to question itself, it confronts Van Staten, but it can't kill him. And it explains to Rose that it wants its freedom. So it goes to the top level, blasts a hole in the ceiling to reveal the sunlight beaming through, and it opens its case and to reveal the creature inside. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the creature met or defied your expectations of what the dog should look like? Because we've seen a fair few glimpses of the Dalek creatures throughout the show mm-hmm. all looking pretty different and your imagination kind of fills the gaps um, very different take on it in say like the Daleks from 63 and also um, the Peter Cushion movie as well where we see the hand coming out mm-hmm. I mean I get they're all mutants that they're very different but from this episode onwards with Dalek we get this definitive look of what the mutant looks like yeah um, what, what was your thoughts on that I think generally speaking I do I do much prefer it when the inside of the Dalek is, is kept mysterious and you maybe just catch glimpses of it I do prefer that approach um, but uh, and, but in terms of the actual design and realisation of it in this episode I can't fault it I think it's a very good design and how it's made and everything like that and I do like this moment in the story I think um uh, really the story's been building up to this moment of that this standoff between the Doctor and the Dalek uh, with Rose in the middle and that whole interaction of, of what's going on I just think is really really great it's very dramatic and there's a lot of character you know, development going on the Doctor realising what he's, you know, sort of what he's become or what he was risking to do um, Rose really putting everything in perspective and then what's happening with the Dalek and it's all sort of very uh, it's just really, really good drama, and um, it's actually really quite emotional with uh, with the Dalek. You know, considering everything that um, we've seen it do, yet yeah, Robert Shearman's uh, um, manages to really turn everything on its head and actually feel feel for the Dalek, which the which then you know the, the which the Doctor. Um, uh, says as well and the fact that you know that the Daleks there just enjoying the sun there's all there's something slightly comic about it but uh if I'm honest when you th- when you think about it but actually in terms of everything and how it's written and performed and realized it it it, it works incredibly well mm. yeah um I was worried there was a bit of a danger that people would be left with this image or memory that 
they did like the Dalek in the end <laughs> and perhaps it was good <laughs> um, but that was kind of disregarded um, Rose certainly didn't feel that way in uh, The Partner of the Ways mm. uh, so yeah didn't have a bad impact so the Doctor arrives with a giant gun that um, Adam had been hoarding um, along with a hairdryer for the day that he fights his way out mm. um, hairdryer one of the few fewer funny moments um, in the episode I guess <laughs> not laugh out loud moments but you know what I mean <laughs> yeah yeah it, uh, it raises a smile it's there yeah um, so Rose stands between the Dalek who just wants to feel the warm sunlight um, she, she does point out the kind of opposing contrast between the two between the Doctor and the Dalek um, like what's he turning into mm-hmm. and uh, he points out that the Dalek is changing into something good um, you know and the Doctor's changing into some into, uh, seemingly more like a Dalek mm-hmm. um, so yeah there's this good parallel between the two and is the Doctor any better than them I think is the question um, so as it begins to evolve and feel and imagine it recognises that it itself is no longer a Dalek and tells Rose that in order sorry she it orders Rose to take its own life so reluctantly she does and it self-destructs and we finally see a use for the the kind of hemispheres on the Dalek skirt I don't think we ever see that again um, no I don't think we do but yeah we get this um, kind of final farewell to Rose from the Dalek um, yeah and like we were talking about before I like the design I like how it's it's almost a half formed face because it's not just a central eye it's, it's more like it was an existing eye and there's like a bit of a sealed mouth there at the bottom mm-hmm. it's kind of freaky so Goddard has Van Staten detained and is taken away to have his memory wiped what exactly gives her the authority to do that and uh, yeah it's, it's bizarre like who is she <laughs> <laughs> Bloody upstart um, is what she is. Mm. But yeah. So as the entire facility is about to be buried forever and um, filled in with concrete, the Doctor and Rose talk by the TARDIS. She asks if maybe some more of his people could have survived, but he suggests that um, he would have felt them somehow. Um, which is a bit of a hint towards his telepathy, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then Rose suggests taking Adam with them, so off they go. One thing I did uh, did notice, uh, I think you're, I think you're aware of it as well, is uh, in the background you see an alien egg. Yes, I actually noticed that today on a little rewatch. I don't know if, um, yeah, it, it is an alien egg, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was, uh, you know, it's just a. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice reference uh, for, for for people who get it. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, Alien is now in the Doctor Who universe, and vice versa. Yeah. Um. While we're on the subject of that, and while we're about to move on, I'll just go into some of the um, tie-in media from other books that reference this story. Um. There's a book from DK Publishing called Doctor Who: The Visual Dictionary. It has a few bits and pieces about the characters, the villains. Um, there's a whole section about Van Staten's vault 
and it tells you some of the museum highlights here and it tells you the descriptions and pictures of some of the artifacts in there. We've got the meteorite from 93, a Martian meteorite from New Mexico. We've got the alien lizard, and we do see like a bit of a lizard head. Um, ape man head, missing link between man and ape. All right. Yeah. Um, the Roswell Milometer, a reptilian head found in 1972, an earthbound bipedal reptile and um, suffered decay found in the British coastal waters and it does actually look like, a, I'd say it looks more like a, a melted sea devil head. Alright, oh, okay. It's a bit decayed. Uh, there's a, a giant beetle um, found in 1922 apparently and Cyberman head but it does say date unknown, incomplete extraterrestrial cyborg specimen recovered from the UK. Uh, there's a few facts about um, the Dalek and there's a few pictures of some of the props like the blaster that uh, the Ninth Doctor uses. And there's also a two page spread um, on the Daleks giving some facts um, from this story. Another tie-in book would be the Target novelization, released 11th of March this year, being 2021. Uh, have you got that, Liam? No. Uh, no, no, not yet. No. Um, Diana Goddard was actually revealed to be an undercover federal agent when she places Van Staten under arrest. Ah, uh, right, okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, the Daleks' back backstory is depicted including the fall of Arcadia during which the Dalek encounters the War Doctor before being flung back through time. Alright, nice. Uh, yeah, and um, lots of other random little changes too. There was an audio of that uh, novelization read by Nick Briggs and the cover art as well as all, as well as all the other recent Target covers was uh, by Anthony Dry. There was a video game on the BBC Doctor Who website in 2005 called The Last Dalek. Did you ever play that? Ah, oh, I remember that. Yes, yes, I it did. It was like a third person kind of thing. Mm. Description is The Last Dalek, also known as The Dalek Game, was an online game based on Doctor Who episode Dalek. The player was in control of the Dalek inside, also known as the Metaltron. The aim of the game was to escape the vault, destroy the TARDIS, and exterminate the Ninth Doctor. So yeah, there you go. There's an official video game of the episode. <laughs> um, we had the entire script of the episode was released in the 2005 shooting scripts hardback. Um, and there's also a two-page introduction from Robert Sheeman as well on the episode. But there's no kind of production photos on that. But uh, it's worth checking that out. Uh, there's a book from 2005 called Monsters and Villains um, also has a bit of writing from Robert Sheeman on his, his memories on the episode um, and some facts on the Daleks too. Maybe more extensive, there was the hardback from 2006 called The Inside Story and it does have a fair few pages about Dalek um, words from the writers, the production team, uh, and there's a few production photos in there as well. Um, one of the, the Dalek under development. Uh, what else? Uh, yep, some behind the scenes photos 
of production, which is pretty cool. Notes on where it was recorded. Recorded it. Q2 Studio Newport, National Museum of Wales, and Millennium Stadium, which I think uh, was actually the the whole facility in Van Staten's vault. Mm-hmm. There was a commentary for the episode released on the complete series one box set, box set <laughs> and uh, subsequent releases. Um, commentary by Robert Sheeman, of course, the writer. Uh, we have. Dave, visual effects advisor, Nick Briggs, Dalek Voice, and Bruno Langley, who played Adam. Nothing major uh, to pick up on the commentary. It was a nice listen. Um, it goes on to talk about how the original story had different elements with um, Van Staten having a wife. Nick Briggs talks about his first experiences working with the Daleks on TV. Yeah, that's about it, though, for the commentary. <laughs> right, <Okay>. Major. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, there was an episode of Doctor Who Confidential, which was first broadcast on BBC Three shortly after the episode itself had finished. A cut-down version of the episode was included on home video releases, and it, it included interviews. It includes various clips of Daleks from the classic era, um, quite a lot of clips from the Peter Cushion movies, too, which I liked nice to kind of acknowledge them and give new viewers a sense that the classic era looked good (laughs) (laughs) Um, originally originally it would have been Rose putting her hand through the slats it was revealed in that yeah that was that cool scene but yeah nothing um, nothing else major revealed from confidential sadly (laughs) Um, anything from behind the scenes that you picked up on no, I think. Um, I mean, the only thing that really stood out is that I that I knew was actually actually from you, Rob. Which was the whole thing about uh, originally there was the idea that you know we would have Van Stratton's wife involved in the story, but other than that, there's um, other stuff that I was you know sort of was vaguely aware of and the, the developments and you know this was recorded in November two thousand and four. Um, so actually, when you think about it, uh, not that long, really, in terms of when the episode would eventually be broadcast. Um, actually, do you remember the exact broadcast date? I'm assuming it would have been April, two thousand five. Sometime, you know, sometime in April. I don't know. <laughs> there you go, thirtieth of April, two thousand and five. April. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. you were close. Hi. You said April, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. You I were just, spot I, on. I didn't Actually, you were more than date. more than close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty close. You got it right. Uh, yeah, thirtieth of <laughs> April, two thousand and five, was when it was broadcast. That's cool. Oh, another little thing in this episode um, is Jubilee Pizza. This episode was loosely based on Robert Sheeman's Dalek story for the Big Finish monthly range Jubilee, and the Jubilee Pizza would live on in Doctor Who on TV. Um, I think it did crop up in the uh, Matt Smith era once or twice, and also it was quite prominent in Torchwood. There was a Jubilee Peter in Cardiff. Yes, yes, that's right. Forgot about that. Aye, so... Wasn't that the Cyberwoman episode? They order a whole load of pizzas? Well, yes, I think it was right from the first episode when... uh, Gwen snuck in 
as the pizza delivery person. All right, okay, yeah. So now it's time for our listeners' responses. We asked people what they thought about this story. Moo Review said, Dalek is the story for me that proves that the show was destined to be good. The previous episodes were good, but seemed like typical Doctor Who adventures. This one dared to do so much and succeeded in my opinion. Besides this story, uh, the final two-parter was my favourite from series one. It did kind of strike a cold off at the end, you know. Um, it wasn't just a typical kind of Doctor Who adventure. Mm-hmm. Did any of the stories before this stand out to you, Liam? I thought The Unquiet Dead was, was very good. I actually thought that, because I thought Rose was quite a, you know, it was a decent introduction. The The End of the World was was, was better and then the Unquiet Dead came along. And I thought, oh, I really like, I really like this one. Um, and I know we've spoken about it before. Then when w- Aliens of London World War Three came out, I really didn't like that. And it was really from that point on I got very critical of the series, and I was very disappointed with it. Even something like Dalek at the time, which I thought was a decent episode, but uh, I, I, yeah. Uh, Aliens of London World War Three really affected my appreciation of the show, and I just thought, "Oh, this is just turgid." And, uh, and unfortunately, it marked my appreciation of later episodes. It shouldn't have done. It was just a really stupid overreaction. But that was my sort of take on it at the time. Uh, what was interesting, though, was that when Dalek was originally broadcast uh, the following Monday, because I was in sixth form at the time, everyone was talking about Doctor Who, but sort of not really not really in sort of like glowing terms and I remember we were in because one of the subjects I studied for A-level was English literature so we're in an English literature lesson and we were all taught and everyone was just going god that was crap wasn't it Um, basically I think what it is we were just a a bunch of very snobby late teens but what was interesting was I remember uh, the English teacher um, he said the only reason why he didn't like it was because he remembered watching Evil of the Daleks, the Patrick Troughton episode, you know, back in 1967 or whenever. And he wasn't keen on it because it contradicted that story. In what way? Uh, I think it was the whole thing with the way that the human factor had been introduced and he felt that Dalek... Which, actually, looking back on it, I actually think uh, Dalek doesn't contradict it. But that was his feelings at the time. But Yeah, I yeah. remember that. Shouldn't we be studying? Yeah, I know, yeah. That's the thing, though, but also passionately we kind of pick on things that contradict one another with this this show. It's our driving force. Yeah. Anyway. So, the Married to Who podcast said, I'd never even heard of Doctor Who before watching Series 1, and I'd certainly never heard of the Daleks. Robert Shearman shows why they've endured all this time by creating a monster that was alone and vulnerable while being scary as hell. Mm-hmm. So many favourites from series one, so I'll give some love to the end of the world. Uh, this is the story where, after watching, I thought to myself, I'm in, I'm watching every episode. Yeah, it's, uh, I agree with that. It, it certainly uh, does show how, how scary the Daleks can be. Um, so it's very effective and yeah it's it's nice to hear that there's some love for the end of the world because I think for a lot of people it's sort of like um, a forgotten episode but it's always something that it's not perfect but 
it is it is very imaginative and i love the different types of aliens that it introduces and i like the overall story and i remember when that was that was one story that always stuck with me uh from the first series i always remember enjoying that neither the time nor space podcast said i like dalek looking past van staten owning the internet and all that silliness the doctor versus dalek storyline is done really well here um in the first Dalek ep I'd ever seen. For season on best ep, I'd pick the two-part finale. That's when I knew I'd be in for the long haul. Mm, yeah, the the season finale is very, very strong. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to appreciate in that one. Yeah. Um, I'd also asked um, people what did they think of this story and what's the favourite from series one. So Robert Sheeran got in touch and said, My favourite is probably the two-parter Empty Child story because it suddenly shown me um, what Doctor Who's future could be. I was so jealous of it, but I love all the eps that year and still feel very proud of Dalek. I hope it stands up all this time on. Yeah, you should, you should be very proud. It's uh, It does hold up. Yeah. Um, we'll do an overall summing up very soon, but... Yeah, it's 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 a very good story. Robert Schumann's a very good writer, and uh, it in some respects it's it's a shame that he hasn't contributed further episodes to the TV series. But you know, the, the one contribution that the, the one episode that he has written for it is, is a damn good one. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly holds up from the writing. He did go on to say, "I think they did a fantastic job on it. Um, I was a very lucky writer." And it's quite a wonderful thing to get the chance to script an episode mm. and and that it's still fondly remembered all these years later. I asked if he had any abiding memories of way back then and he said, I think most powerfully it was seeing Chris and Billy for the first time in the read-through uh, of Rose and Aliens of London. I was still deep in rewrites but I suddenly had the reality of how real the Doctor and Rose were going to be. And how they would make my lines real too. Yeah, and he says, best of luck with the podcast. I hope you have fun revisiting it. And take kindly to its somewhat wayward tone. It was only episode six. I had no idea what the series was going to become. Smiley face. <laughs> well, that's nice. It's uh, it's lovely that he's taking the time to, to respond. I love that. It's, it's very appreciated. Whether he's listening or not, I'm not sure. But uh, if he is listening... Uh, uh, Rob, the other one, Mr. Shearman. Uh, I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. It hasn't been too painful. And uh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We do have a few more responses. Um, Gareth Alexander said, I think I speak for many th- fans when I say it's an exceptional piece that offsets and complements other still good episodes of that series and would largely fit perfectly in any of the New Who series. Thomas Haynes said, It's an amazing story from the Ninth Doctor era. The Dalek in this story is so creepy, I love it and rate it a 10 out of 10. The Out of 10 podcast said, Dalek is the best in that series, but but my favourite is the Bad Wolf 2-parter. Jason Thompson said, Dalek is my favourite in Series 1 for sure. By this point, the Daleks were usually seen in comics moaning about the stairs <laughs> or in Kit Kat adverts asking for cuddles. In here, a single Dalek is made one hell of a threat. 
So when hundreds turn up at the end of the series, it's big. It does all the best things with that Dalek. When it's fully powered up, it's unstoppable. When it's at a disadvantage, it manipulates Rose and the Doctor psychologically to get an advantage again. It's made the Daleks a genuinely threatening adversary again. Unfortunately, I think there, I understand, contractually mandated once per season appearance has since diluted their effectiveness because their appearance of the Daleks is not an event anymore and of course they get beaten again every time. Um, I know that there is this thing that um, there's this contractual obligation to, to have them uh, appear every year. I know... Um, I'm sure I asked somebody about that in, in I think it was Gareth Roberts and then I, I know that Stephen Moffat has talked about this and a few others they've all denied this and said that there's no contractual obligation to use them every year they just decide to do that so whether so I don't think there is that contractual obligation however I do agree with that point that they have been massively overused um, to the point where sort of like sick of seeing them um it's not just that because i think um robert sheerman's story here dalek does a phenomenally good job of bringing them back and just using them and showing how much of a threat they can be it it is very very good it's like what we said we were reviewing the episode uh, earlier he he does everything to you know he talks about you know their their you know their racial hatred that's in there how intelligent they are that's in there how ruthless and deadly and so on it's all in there uh so it's a great story and then it also helps establish the two-part finale which uh, the vast majority of our listeners have mentioned which is great and that's a really great story arguably it's the only time in new doctor who you may disagree and listeners may disagree but from from my perspective it's the only time in new doctor who that we have good Dalek stories. From this point onwards, after Christopher Eccleston's series, they're just not as good. And I think it's a case of sort of like diminishing returns. And especially from the Daleks in Manhattan episode, it's just like, no. Mm. And the fact that they do keep on returning does dilute their effectiveness. And the fact that, you know, it's an, you know, their, their being there should be an event. One of the frustrating things is Stephen Moffat said this, that the problem is we're bringing the Daleks back uh, all the time is that uh, it dilutes their effectiveness and the fact that they become the most defeated uh, villain in the show's history. Great, Stephen Moffat. You've recognised that. Why do you then continue to bring them back then? It, you know, I found that quite frustrating. Well, he, he, he brought them back and made them victorious for one episode. <laughs> but then he also kind of killed the reputation even more <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well we've talked about that in Victory of the Dogs because I, I just in that respect it was like right, you're bringing something new into it have the strength of your conviction and then you get Asylum of the Daleks and that's a lot of crap in my in my view when the Daleks were introduced in the 1960s you know you have you know there's an awful lot of Dalek stories in the 60s but you know they're new they're novel and they're finding out new and interesting ways to do the you know the character uh and they really hit it with the Daleks' master plan and then Power of the Daleks, which I just think is amazing. And I know you get evil of the Daleks. From Tom Baker's time onwards, the fact that they appear very sparingly, I think, is one of the great things. They're their Genesis, Destiny, and then the rest of the Doctors only encounter them once. 
in the TV series, and I think that's great. And so when they do come, you know, when they do come, there is that there is the fact that it's an event. Um, and yeah, that's something that's been lost with New Doctor Who. It's a shame. But going back to the to the positives, um, the Christopher Eccleston series absolutely nailed it, and it begins with this story, Dalek, and it, you know it's very very good. Um, but I think in terms of me summing it up, I think the story works very good in terms of the the writing. I think Robert Sheeman's script holds up very very well. I think the actors in terms of the casting and how they perform it I think is great um, I think Murray Gold's score is good I remember I, I wasn't aware of being distracted by it at all uh, when I was re-watching this episode um, where I think the story falls down is the direction it's not awful, it's not bad direction but then it's not good or great. I just think it's 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 fine. I just think there are moments when it could just been, you know, certain shots could have been a bit tighter, certain moments could have been done a bit little bit pacier. Um, it it's sort of one of those instances where I just feel like the, the the directing should have been able to lift the story just that little, you know, just married up perfectly. And so, in my view, I think a lot of people will disagree with how I'm going to score this. I'm going to say this is an average story. Uh, and I'm really disappointed I'm having to do that. And it, and again, it's not because of the writing. The writing hits everything spot on. I love, I love the story. I love the script. I like the acting. I just feel that the direction lets the story down a little bit. As I said, it's not awful direction. He doesn't do an awful job. But then he doesn't do a great job. I just think it's sort of... Yeah, fine. Yeah, shocked. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that's a good point. Um, anything in particular about how the story turned out visually, about the directing? Is it just certain sequences, or um, what about the tone of the episode, the lighting? Does that bother you? A little bit. Um, so there are certain moments where it's, it's like when we were talking about the way that Van Stratton's uh, character is introduced. I feel like the the intention of that scene in terms of how it's written isn't married up to how it's directed. I just think it's a little bit too loose. I think, you know, and I think it goes into if I it's like what I said I compared it to that moment in the movie Brazil. Uh if it was directed like that with um oh, that's the way I think visually I think it would have been quite interesting. There are certain angles which I think are which are a bit I don't know, it just feels like it, you know, certain shots should have been a little bit tighter, maybe the angle was slightly off. And yeah, I think sometimes the the lighting is a little bit harsh and it it kind of shows up the 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 budget for what really the story needs. Um it 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 feel I don't want to say it looks cheap because it doesn't. But it doesn't look as it doesn't look as visually great as it could have done. I think it could have been it could have been a bit more atmospheric with the lighting. Um, yeah, I, I mean I know it's all interior work, but the lighting it really really feels artificial mm-hmm. to, to some extent. Yeah, um, even the natural beam of light that we get at the end. No, a bit too sort of blue. Yeah, you know that harsh blue white look that you have but then it looks great on the on the shot of the the, 
the Dalek itself. So, yeah. um, uh, so that's the thing. It's uh, as I said, it's it's not it's not awful. It's not it's not shoddy production. It clearly isn't. But I just think um, perhaps a little bit more care would have been quite nice because I just think yeah, the the lighting could have, you know something you know stronger could have been done there and just some of the directorial choices. Um, and it's a shame because I'm saying it's an average story um, but, and it isn't really and if you if you're focusing actually on the on the plot and the the script and the acting you know the performances and everything like that clearly you know it's very very good mm. but take you know but you've got to take these things as a whole and I just feel like um, the direction could have sold the story just a little bit more I would say it's a good mm-hmm. story. That's how I rate it. Um, we did do a poll. We asked how you would all rate it: good, average, or bad. Eighty-nine point nine percent said good. Mm-hmm. Eight point six average, and one point four percent said bad. Um, that's of um, one hundred and thirty-nine votes. Someone said there was no excellent option. Um, so went for good someone else said the one above good <laughs> someone else said who ticked bad uh, and then the married to who podcast got in touch and said I was just swiping on my phone and I think I registered a bad vote <laughs> yeah whatever stick stick yeah. with your choice yeah, if anyone generally that- thinks the episode's bad I mean I think you're wrong but it'd be interesting to see why you think that Mm. One of the things that I mean, it's it's great that it cl- it's clearly an episode that is much beloved by an awful lot of people, which is really, really, you know, it's that's great to see. And I know that I've said that it's average, you know, for the reasons that I've explained. But uh, I can perfectly see the reasons why people say it's good because of you know everything else. Um, and I think it's pro- you know, um, uh, I think you know some people probably think that I'm being too harsh, possibly. Um, I mean, my feeling of it is that, you know, people regard this as probably a modern classic uh, for Doctor Who. And, yeah, I can totally see where they're coming from. So, yeah, we can disagree. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we still both love it. But, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I am being a bit overly critical of it. But, you know, it's, you know one of the things that we, we are on this podcast is that, you know, we're honest in our appreciation of it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I I want to make it perfectly clear, I know uh, I do like Dalek. I do think, you know, (laughs) I will happily watch it again. It's not a problem. As I say, the only issue, if that's not too strong a word uh, with it, is I just feel that the the direction could have been a little bit better. Um, And that's the thing as well. I don't think the, the direction's awful. I'm not saying that. It clearly isn't. I just think it could have been a bit better, that's all. Um, so I think that's almost everything for today. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else to mention, Liam? Uh, no, not in terms of Dalek, but in terms of the next podcast. So the next podcast we'll be doing is we'll be reviewing uh, my favourite uh, Christopher Eccleston story, which is... Any guesses, Rob? Is it a two-parter? No, no, it's a single. Oh. Um, it's the end of the world. No, it's the the the, the unquiet dead. No, uh, they're two very good episodes, especially the quiet dead. Uh, I, it's Father's I, I, Day. 
That's it. Yep, it's Father's Day. <laughs> I got there in the By end. By process of elimination, uh, yes, it's Father's Works Day. Works every time. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, Father's Day. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Oh, well, we better, we better go and get to work prepping for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you can check out some of our other Ninth Doctor podcasts. In Podcast 24, we talked about the episode after Dalek being the long game. And in podcast 67 recently, we talked about Boomtown. A quick reminder of our socials, facebook.com slash cloisterbell, Twitter at podcastbell, Instagram cloister underscore bell. Uh, we're on YouTube and um, we have a great website, cloisterbellpodcast.com, where you can check out all of our content. Um, and remember to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And support the podcast on Patreon for early access and more. So I think that's it for today. Uh, Thanks for listening. Um, Tune in next week for our Father's Day review. And remember to subscribe to the podcast um, for more great podcasts. And we'll also be reviewing future TV stories whenever they're out. (laughs) Um, So... See you soon. Thanks for listening. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye. The TARDIS cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.